I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. Uh, we're a podcast that's devoted to thinking. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And this is our monthly Hanover House episode. And today, it's me and Brandon, as well as Cody Float. Uh, Connor McMakin was unable to join us this time. And we decided to go for it anyway. It, this is supposed to be designed to be a little bit more informal. So I think it's it, just imagine for a second in your mind, you just listen to the, one of these podcast episodes. You go with your buddies over to the coffee shop or the pub if you're truly reformed. And, <laughs> and then you just decide, well, I've listened to this. Now we're just going to talk about some of the things that kind of came up from these episodes, questioning, debating, uh, and then more, some more emphasis on how do I apply this to my own local church? What does that look like for my church members? Yada, yada, yada. So I think the fact that Connor wasn't able to join us is very uh, much in line with our casual type of style here, where we just went to the coffee shop and he had to bail. So so we'll go ahead and get started. We had a listener request to to have us follow up a little bit on the the Craig Carter uh, episode with R.T. Mullins. And so it was two separate episodes, I guess. I'll link them down below in the notes. Uh, Originally, I guess it all started with Craig Carter putting some of his upcoming book that's supposed to release in Credo Magazine. My friend Ryan Mullins read some of it. He got triggered or whatever. (laughs) (laughs) We direct message and we decide, let's let's do an episode on, on, on some things that you have some problems with. So we do that. And then we let we send it to Craig and say, Hey, you, you can have opportunity to re- reply if you want. He said, yeah, let's do it. So then he uh, replies and that's, that's how we got here. So I don't know uh, how much we want to just talk about some of the takeaways we got from it. I've got some idea questions that we can kind of press into, but a few things that came to mind for me is number one, I think some people probably realize that, at least me personally, I mean, I think me, Brandon, Cody, all affirm on paper the same things that Craig Carter does uh, and don't affirm what what Ryan Mullins does when it comes to doctrine of God. So things like God being without body parts and passions, things like God being immutable or eternal, those types of doctrines, us four agree on that. Uh, We reject what Ryan says. However, at least for me, I find some of Craig's arguments troubling to get to those conclusions that he gets to. And that's partly why I've maybe maybe you've seen me and you thought, well, he's denying classical theism. No, no, no. I'm denying bad arguments for classical theism. Yeah. So I think Craig has made some mistakes. Um, I think Craig doesn't understand all the issues at play. Just as one example that came to my mind is – at some point in the episode, he talked about uh, not liking critical realism, uh, thinking N.T. Wright, you know, he's a critical realist. And he's like, this is, you know, you've, you've got to be a, a realist, not a critical realist. And he's in the way he's defining these terms, he's thinking these are metaphysical terms. Critical realism is not a metaphysical term. That is a epistemological term. I mean, Alistair McGrath is a critical realist. Uh, it's just about examining our own presuppositions and everything. And based on what Carter says in his own interpreting scripture in the great tradition, he's a critical realist when it comes to epistemology. 
whether he wants to affirm that terminology or not. So I just think there's some some mistakes in some of what he's doing. I'm not denying his conclusions. I think classical theism is correct. Uh, however, I find some of his arguments that he's making, some of the entailments he's making incorrect, as well as some of the arguments he's made against these other models of God. So, yeah, I, I'm going to come in defense of my relational whatever you want to call it, relational theism, mutual theism, theistic personalism, whatever the terminology is for them. I think the majority of them are Christians, depending on how far you go down this road. Uh, the majority of them probably are typical people in my own church. That's probably what they functionally believe in some respect, if they're not catechized correctly. If you're in a regular Southern Baptist church, I imagine 50% of your people probably just assume that's the way it is, that they haven't really thought about it for two seconds. Bruce Ware, as an example, is someone who's thought about it. I think I affirm him as a friend and a believer, and I think some of the claims that Craig made, like you can't affirm creation ex nihilo, is just wrong. Now, in that episode, he did clarify he meant not they can't, but functionally, I guess, or I guess functionally they can, but substantively they can't, but I still don't follow that argument. So I'll stop talking. Did you guys have any other just overall feedback on the episode? Well, Episodes? Well, you mentioned, um, you know, how far down that road can you go as far as the other um, views on the doctrine of God outside of classical theism. I'm just curious to get y'all's opinion on how far do you think you can go down that road without... You know, and, and still call someone a Christian. Um, it doesn't seem to me that it should just be an arbitrary decision that I get to make and you get to make. Um, so I'm just curious what you think on, on how far we can go down the road. Uh, that's, that's a good question. Because I mean, sure something, like, uh, something like just the, the whole ESS and EFS yeah. you know, deal, that's, I mean, that's, a, that's a big deal. And it's pretty mm-hmm. widespread, especially in conservative evangelical Southern Baptist circles, um, you know, so do we just say it's not that big of a deal and, or do we, or can we say, yeah, it is that big of a deal, but they're still a Christian or, or, I mean, cause I don't think anybody wants here, here wants to say they're not Christians. And even Carter didn't say that. I'm not trying to put those words. No, no, no. Um, but you know, I, we have to find a way to be able to acknowledge and really press home just how important an issue like that is. Then also keep it in the perspective of, you know, who's on the side of the angels and, and who's not. So I do think that there is an initial distinction you can make between knowingly submitting to a certain doctrine when you know the other position mm-hmm. and then completely unknowingly. So I would imagine vast majority of just average typical church member in the pew at most Southern Baptist churches has no idea of these right. different competing positions. So I think that that that's one thing. But let's examine, I guess, some of the people that we've been targeting. I think Bruce Ware is one of the targets. Who else is it? John Frame's name's been thrown around as this, you know, theistic mutualist. Uh, though those guys are obviously much closer to us. Yeah. I think, and I may be incorrect in this, somebody like Craig Carter would say, you have to assert, affirm the Nicene Creed in addition to these necessary implications of the Nicene Creed, these presuppositions that these guys held. And that would then be problematic for guys like Bruce or or for John. Whereas I would be more, I want to say you have to affirm the propositions of the Nicene Creed 
and I'm not as dogmatic as how you get there. Do I think it's better to get there the right way? Yeah. I mean, I think of what Augustine and his interpretive method of the scriptures, he's kind of, I think he basically said, as long as you get to the end goal of love of God and neighbor, you're mm-hmm. okay. So yeah, there is a path. <laughs> and if you go down that path, that interpretive path, it's much easier on you. It's better for everybody. But let's say you fall off the, and you go in the woods and you have this crazy interpretive method, but you end up with love of God and neighbor. He's okay with that. And I would probably say something similar with the Nicene Creed. As long as you get to those propositions, I'm okay. I think we all have inconsistent beliefs. I think we all have inconsistent thoughts that are incorrect somewhere in our belief tree and system. So I don't think you have to have all that correct. I don't, what do you guys think? Yeah, yeah. I think it depends on where you knowingly are on the slope. That makes sense. So my big issue, listening back through Dr. Carter's interview, was he does he does genuinely seem to be kind of just like using a lot of slippery slope fallacies of just saying, especially with the ex nihilo argument, of saying, look, like they may claim that they affirm creation ex nihilo, but let's just be real, the slope leads to them denying it or then denying transcendence, et cetera. And that's just not being honest to where a particular theologian actually is. Mm-hmm. So for instance, this morning I was reading T.F. Torrance and he's not a classical theist in the least. <clears throat> he strongly comes out against it, but he's also very strongly affirming all throughout his book, uh, Creation Ex Nihilo. And he talks about that all throughout the book. And so I think you have to be honest to where a theologian actually is. And yeah, you can bring up saying, well, this is this is the this is an implication of your argument for creation next ex nihilo that you ought to consider. Like that's important to say, but you don't want to just attribute the end of a slope to the person that you're dealing with. And I think Dr. Carter does that quite a bit in the way that he engages um, those he disagrees with on this particular issue. So because most most of your average church members won't be at the end of that slope. Right. Um, I can think about this even in our church. You know, I, yeah, you can talk to, you can talk to a church member about impassibility, for instance, and you can use even like the second London's confessional terms of a God without passions. And your average church member is going to probably immediately freak out a little bit (laughs) Mm -hmm. and say, what does that even mean? Does this mean like God doesn't love me? Does this like, you see, like they're going to immediately jump on that. That doesn't mean that your church member is knowingly, you know, a theistic mutualist or whatever the term we want to use. It just means that, you know, they haven't knowingly dived into these issues. They also probably haven't been in, introduced to a lot of these theological terms and concepts. Um, and, but as like at our church, you know, as we've kind of walked through, like this is what, you know, the second London's language of a God without passions actually means. They're like, oh, okay, well, that that makes sense. And that's an encouraging reality. So I think you just have to know where you're in regards to church members, where they're at on that slope, so to speak, mm-hmm. um, and then just deal with them where they're at instead of, you know, kind of jumping to the end of the slope and assuming the worst. Yeah, and I, I want to reiterate the fact that I think all of us, 
like Craig, we affirm what Craig affirms, you know, on, on, on confessional standards. And I think it's okay to disagree with somebody else. You, yeah. That's one of the beauties of confessionalism is you know your bounds and you can kind of uh, push and shove and, and be okay with somebody being different than you and have different thoughts because mm-hmm. you affirm the same fundamental truths in the same way with just broad orthodoxy. I, I can have good friendships and relationships with those people who don't affirm the second London confession of faith, but they do affirm the ecumenical creeds. I know where their boundaries are and I'm cool with that. You know, we can have our friendly disagreements and that's fine. So I think it's healthy to have disagreement and it's totally fine. So if you're getting angry, listening to this, just tone it down 10 10 notches. I think that's what makes this issue, you know, because I can sit here and it's much easier for me to say, Oh, well, you know, this this brother this sister over here they're not on the same page as i am on like egalitarianism or whatever else and and, and it's easy for me to 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 think about you know i can have good fellowship with them and but but now we're talking about the doctrine of god and that's yeah. kind of what you know just it just it just the the gravity and weight of being wrong on the doctrine of god which i mean it should weigh on us pretty heavily but i think that's what makes this it heightens the stakes that much more, I think, but I don't know. Yeah. I mean, for all of us who came on Twitter and initially started debating baptism, this is yeah, right, know, right. 10, <laughs> 10 steps down the road. So why don't we ask the question here with just, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about Nicene metaphysics, uh, about post enlightenment philosophy, which is I think Carter's term. And, why does any of this even matter for your own local church member or does it? Maybe you would just say, well, I think pastors need to know because of X, Y, and Z, but you know, ordinary Joe, it's largely irrelevant for him besides just his own personal enrichment. If he so desires, what do you guys think? Yeah. So I would say having like an intro, I would say an introductory understanding of kind of philosophical trends is important even for the lay person because we so often don't understand or don't realize how much we have been influenced by various philosophies, right? So yeah, I even, you know, saw this on Twitter last night with a discussion between, you know, Neil Shinvi and Luke Stamps about biblical interpretation, you know, and Neil making a comment I thought was fairly modernist, right? Philosophically at least. Um, And we so often make statements or make comments and hold beliefs that are uh, influenced by modernism or postmodernism, whatever. And so I think it is important for pastors to at least have kind of like a base working knowledge of these trends so that they can kind of speak into the lives of their church members and say, hey, like this is kind of this is where I think you're getting this you know, culturally, this thought that you may have. I think, you know, Carl Truman's new book is a really excellent example of this, of kind of seeing this is like sociologically, philosophically where culture is, right? This is where, how we've been influenced. And this is how you can see this directly impacting your life. Um, And so I think it is important for pastors to engage with. What about your normal church member? Unless, Brandon, were were you going to say something? Well, no, I was just going to say, I mean, I think, you know, specifically on on the doctrine of God. And I mean, obviously, we've already touched on how important metaphysical presuppositions are to this discussion and debate. But I mean, I just think that for the average church member to actually, because I mean, let's just be honest here. I mean, for 
the average, I'm a Southern Baptist, so Southern Baptist lay person has not, has never read a book on the doctrine of God. I mean, they've not, they've not put any kind of deep thought about it. And I don't, maybe they haven't been led to, that's probably the case. And that's something that as leaders in the church, we need to take responsibility for and, and try to change. But one of the things that I think is so, um, that the doctrine of God does for you is it provides like a window into these other disciplines because you're not going to get too far in studying the doctrine of God without going into philosophy, going into, you know, church history and historical theology. You know, you're not going to go far, very far down the road and even an introductory study of the doctrine of God without having some understanding of what's going on in those other disciplines. So I think that's another benefit of, you know, just the average layperson. Um, delving into these doctrine of God debates and discussions is it, it it's going to make you sharper in other areas as well. Yeah. Yeah. And the metaphysic with which you approach the doctrine of God is going to affect the way that you read scripture. So yeah. um, that's really important as well. It's for the lay person, right? Of, I would say for the lay person having a introductory working knowledge of kind of uh, the discussion on the doctrine of God will help them just to be better, better Bible readers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they won't be interp- reading scriptures so uh, literalistically like we're often mm-hmm. tempted to do in yeah. our modern world. Um, often kind of, yeah, treating kind of for that Twitter discussion last night, treating biblical passages like math equations, mm-hmm. you yeah. know, and just kind of like, you know, all I have to do in order to like do biblical interpretation is all of these like, you know, kind of word studies and just fit these pieces together. And voila, mm-hmm. I have a right or a sound interpretation of this passage and a better, uh, I would say, yeah, Nicene metaphysic would would help um, congregants in that way. Um, and so that's not something I think lay people should be afraid of. You know, I think there are excellent, especially nowadays, there are excellent introductions to these kinds of things that a layperson can get their hands on. So I can think of like, you know, Scott Swain's recent little volume on the Trinity that Crossway put out. I think that's an excellent little introduction that begins to introduce what is a Nicene metaphysic without using any of the words. Mm-hmm. And I know lay people that have read that book and were like, it was just my eye opening for them. And they were like, this is like, this is really great. And so I think, for pastors, knowing those resources that can kind of open lay their congregants' eyes to these metaphysical realities in a way that's accessible, I think is really important. Yeah, that's helpful. So I guess part of what Carter's burden is here is he's saying, look, guys, we need to think about the, the metaphysical foundations of our doctrines. And I think that's right. We shouldn't just look and say, God exists and just say, yes, that's great. Or God is omnipotent. Yes, that's great. I think, yeah, we want to affirm those, but we do want to think about, okay, what does it mean that God is omnipotent? And what is it, what must I affirm just about reality in general to be consistent with that belief? So he has basically said there's, you know, five broad categories uh, of metaphysical and epistemological claims, just to clarify, because he says there's these like, uh, what post-enlightenment metaphysics is nominalist, materialistic, mechanistic, skeptical, and relativist. 
Uh, skepticism has nothing to do with metaphysics. <laughs> Just so we're clear, that's an epistemological thing. Um, and he, so a lot of his thing, he's harping on, you got to be a realist, you got to be this and yeah. that. I think it's right to think about these things, but I don't think he's been thinking about them well well enough. I think if you go to Google and you type in what is realism or you just go to Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, you're going to realize you can be a realist about some things and about not about other things. Yeah. I, I want to be a realist that God exists, that angels exist, that demons exist, that there's actual meaning in, in the biblical text, all these things. But I don't have to be a realist about a lot of – I don't have to be a realist about there being a property of – I am taller or I'm shorter than Brandon or I'm taller than Brandon. Does that property exist? Well, I'm not a realist about that being a, a real thing. I think that uh, let's use a fancy word supervenes on, on the, the objects that exist. But uh, all that to say is I think there's a lot more nuance in this discussion than is being portrayed. So yeah. that, that's what I'm trying to say here is let, <laughs> let's dial back the rhetoric. Let's dial back the polemics. And say, yes, it is important to know our metaphysical foundations, but using these giant catch-all terms as the this is orthodoxy is dangerous because you are going to start walling yourself off from your friends, from your brothers and sisters, from those who are actually in your tribe, and insulating yourself to the point where you are the only person who actually affirms what you call orthodoxy. That's, that's, that's what I fear uh, when, when we yeah. go down this route. So I think it's important, but I, I'm afraid of becoming too sectarian to the point where we just have alienated everybody else. Does that make sense? Yeah. 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 I mean, and you know, the more, and I've said this before about other things, but the more I read on this topic and participate in these podcasts and, and think about it, I mean, the it's just humbling. Like, I mean, I realize like really how little I know, like, and <laughs> so it's, it just makes me, you know, I want to think twice before I, I really try to nail somebody to the wall about something because, you know, there are, there are things that, that could be said in return that I just don't have answers to, you know? So, I mean, I sure. think, I think we do need to, and that that's a, that's an easy takeaway, but I mean, I, given the way we tend to talk to each other nowadays, um, it's probably a good reminder, you know, that we should uh, approach this with a, a humble posture, not just because it's, this is God we're talking about here, but you know, for each other's sake as well. Yeah, I just, at least I think in my own, if, if you want to get like real narrow theological tribe, this, uh, I know it's a dirty word now, this 1689. I do think that there is a bad connotation, sometimes for a reason, that yeah. we have, we've siloed ourselves off from the great tradition, really, because we've so narrowed what you must hold and anathematized and made everybody else enemies that does not hold to my specific vision of all of these doctrines. And some things are second, third tier doctrines. Yeah. Yeah. And like you were saying, because the conversation is often so nuanced, the, these kinds of broad sweeping claims just frankly are not helpful. Even if you take like the last little tenant that Dr. Carter listed with post enlightenment philosophy being relativistic, that's just like not true across the board. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, there are elements of, <clears throat> I would argue there are elements of, you know, like postmodern theories, like, like, you know, various critical theories, right, that dabble in relativism, but also have very strong objective claims on, on the world around them. And so it's, it's just not helpful to kind of approach it being, look, everything that's come 
since post-enlightenment is relativistic, right? Everything that was during the enlightenment is just straight up neutral, unbiased observer. Like that's just, that's true a lot of the time. That's not true all the time. And I think for those of us who do want to like uphold like the ninth commandment, like not lying, we want to be truth tellers that, uh, pervades even to the nuances of these discussions that we want to truthfully and honestly critique those in front of us um, with the particular ideas that they have, knowing that you can't just loop, you know, let's say like, yeah, Ryan Mullins into this large category of, you know, theistic mutualism or whatever, or throw Bruce Ware in there, you know, like Bruce Ware and Ryan Mullins are not in the same category. (laughs) And you can't, you can't, you can't put them in the same category. And it's just yeah. not faithful to do that. And um, even though that may win you a lot of, you know, Twitter likes, retweets, whatever, you know, it's just like not helpful for furthering discussion, especially discussion that is so important, like we've talked yeah. about, right? The doctrine of God is so important that that ought to ca- give us even more caution when making kind of claims about the person that we're critiquing. Yeah. I mean, you you can pick any one of those five things that he's harped on in the past. Anti-nominalism. What do you mean by that? <laughs> There's plenty of nominalists in different areas all throughout the great tradition. What do you mean by anti-materialism? Do you just mean the the incredibly broad claim that there are things that are immaterial in the world? Because if you do that, there are very few actual materialists because there's plenty of, I would say probably the majority of materialists now do affirm that there are immaterial propositions, uh, mental states. Those things are not material. Maybe they reduce to the material or something, but those are in themselves not material. So what do you even mean Mm -hmm. by, by these terms? Obviously maybe his, his, rebuttal would simply be, well, I, I don't mean to be fine-grained. I mean to be just extremely broad, but then I don't know what good these term, terms are if you're as broad as being able to capture literally everybody and not, I, I don't know. This is 100% unscripted, so <laughs> you, you get what you get, and it just, it just comes. Um, one thing that that does come to mind I want to touch on is Craig has made a huge deal about this idea of God being transcendent. And I think part of his fear, at least I'm halfway through his new book. It's not out yet, but I've got a Kindle version of it, which is enraging because I can't get it on my laptop. It's only on my phone and it doesn't have (laughs) legit page numbers. But all that said, I'm reading it. And he makes this huge deal about transcendence. And basically saying, you know, if you don't take the strict classical theism model, you can't affirm that God is really transcendent. And so there's probably, I guess, two questions from this. Number one, why does transcendence really matter? What is what does transcendence mean? And number two, do I have to be a strict classical theist to, to affirm transcendence? And maybe an ancillary question of that, do I have to be a strict classical theist to even affirm something like the second London confession of faith, because truth be told the second London confession of faith. Yes, it is specific, but it's not so specific as to giving the metaphysical claims of a strict classical theistic 
viewpoint. So I do think that personally, there's some wiggle room there. It says without body parts or passions, it says nothing about the identity thesis and divine simplicity. It doesn't give me, here's exactly what you must believe here. It doesn't give me all the details of what it means to be without passions. Yes, it does give me some content and it does have some background that you should be aware of, but I think it gives a certain degree of latitude with what version of classical theism I affirm. So Cody, you look like you had thoughts and maybe Brandon, you have to talk too. So one of you guys go. Yeah, no, I, I think you're spot on. I do think there's wiggle room within the second Lenten for kind of various portrayals of classical theism. Um, and obviously transcendence is uh, implied by what was spoken of there in regards to God being without parts and passions. Right. Um, that does, I would say demand a transcendence. Um, and so, so what, in, transcendence well, is just that God is completely outside, like different than the world, right? Is that what we're saying? He transcends the yes. world and that he is something distinct and unique. Yeah. So oh, yeah. Okay. That's kind of baseline, baseline what I would, what I would say. And so I think, so Dr. Carter is right to say that um, classical theism makes a demand upon transcendence. But that does not mean that those who would deny elements of classical theism are then subsequently without transcendence. Because, again, you look at somebody like Bruce Ware, and that's just simply not the case. You know, you sit in his Doctrine of God class, and it's very clear that he believes in a transcendent God, right, who is outside of time, governing all things, and is not a creature. So, um, so like, yeah, you could argue that they are— implications from denying classical theism that maybe make some sort of claim upon transcendence. But again, just kind of like throwing somebody like a Bruce Ware, you know, and kind of casting them off with, you know, the Jürgen Moltmanns of the world, you know, is just not a helpful way to go about dialogue. Um, yeah. What Carter says this specifically, the rational relational God is not transcendent. So he does not have a seity, and he is not metaphysically separate from from the creation. Yeah, but uh, uh, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, how how you understand transcendence, for for example, impassibility, I mean, does make its way all the way down to, you know, the ground level work of the church, for instance, how yeah. you're going to counsel someone through suffering. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are you going to say God is suffering with you, or are you going to say, yes. you know, because <laughs> uh, that that's kind of the that's that's I would I would guess the default and for most people now, but you, um, you can make that claim, can you not? Because of Christ, you you well, can say is suffering as man. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can nuance the claim to be theologically. I don't think that's correct. what somebody like Moltmann is saying. Oh yeah, uh, sure. I think that's right. <laughs> so so but I think cash value. You're going to get the same the same mileage out of those two models when you're counseling, right? I don't feel like I'm going to get less, you know, hope knowing that it's, it's not God's nature that's suffering. It's, it's Christ's human nature that's suffering. I still know God, the son, the, the person is. So if that was the case, then what, what was the, why, why did we even go this route in the, in the 20th century where um, more, more and more people wanted to say that it's the divine nature suffering? I guess what, that would be my question. If you're going to get the same mileage out of just saying the Son of God yeah. uh, is suffering yeah. in His humanity, um, I guess I, I think, think you would. They yeah, don't, and I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, I, think, I, I, yeah. I yeah. Go ahead, I, Cody. I think you do get the same mileage. I think they 
went a different route because they're denying other presuppositions as well, right? So Moltmann isn't simply just trying to get rid of impassibility, right? He's he's denying the whole kit and caboodle of the traditional right. doctrine of God. And so I think um, transcendence is crucial because we do live, um, and you know, you can read Charles Taylor, right? We do live in within kind of the philosophy of the imminent frame, right? That's mm-hmm. the way that kind of culture often often thinks about it. The world often thinks about it now is we're merely imminent. And so that is what Dr. Carter is critiquing when he's going after theistic mutualism, relativism, whatever. Um, but that does not, I don't think, uh, make you know, or necessitate that those who would quibble with elements or, you know, or have just a modified understanding of impassibility or simplicity, right, that they then are necessarily having to deny elements of God's transcendence. Um, Because you read, you read a lot of these guys who do holds maybe some like modified understanding of um, impassibility or simplicity. Um, I think like Ryan Lister has a book from Crossway kind of giving a modified position, right? None of those guys are denying transcendence. They have very strong views of transcendence and even guys who would kind of deny maybe impassibility or simplicity outright. Um, even they can have, uh, under like, I don't know if we want to use the word strong or not, but they have an understanding of transcendence and, um, and you have to reckon with that, right? Yeah. As, as someone who is reading and critiquing, you have to reckon with what the person you're talking to or reading is actually saying. Right. So let's, let's take time as an example. So I think Carter would say, well, if God is inside of time, he's not, he's, he is eternal, but he's inside time. He would say, well, that makes God a creature because there's something outside of God that is, that he's just part of that everything else is part of. But that's not the argument that the opposing relational theist is most of them are going to make. Yeah, maybe they'll say that God is temporal in some sense, but they're going to deny that time is some sort of metaphysical entity that's like trapping God inside of it, that everybody, therefore everybody's on the same plane of existence. Uh, some of them are even going to say, well, time's an attribute of God. So they have ways of uh, of changing their own models to avoid this conclusion that Carter's trying to press on them saying, this must be your conclusion. So he's basically feeding them premises that they, they reject and saying, look, here's three premises. Here's the conclusion. You've got a, you've got a creature as your God. And they'd say, no, 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 no. Yeah. I affirm one, but I deny two and three. This is what I say. And that's why I, God is not a creature for me. So I think we got to be really careful when Im- implicating views to other people that they simply would not follow that argument at all. Yeah, I mean, there's a difference in pointing out what you see as someone's inconsistencies, you know, yeah. versus ascribing to them a view that they obviously don't hold. And 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 in in the rhetoric, the rhetoric and in the back and forth, I think that that line gets blurred sometimes. Because yeah. again, I'm, I'm a classical theist. I think God's timeless, but but the arguments that are being made and a lot of pop classical theism today because it's all the rage is just they're bad arguments uh mm-hmm. i know they 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 excite you but they're not going to win converts to classical theism they're just going to piss them off 
just to be quite frank, yeah. because it's not accurate. If you want to win people to classical theism, you've got to do it in a way that is uh, charitable to the opposing viewpoint and actually representing them fairly. I think that, I mean, this just goes, this is just standard, you know, human nature 101. When someone finds out that you've been dishonest or misrepresented somebody else, suddenly they question everything. When they hit this weird moment of where they're like, deconstructing or whatever the better term is or all their stuff and they see that you've been doing you know sketch things like this they're going to question everything so if you're not honest and you're not fairly representing other people you are doing i think damage long term to your own position even if you're right that, that i mean that's my take yeah yeah i mean well i had uh this might be a good place to interject this i had you know, when I was thinking about this, um, I was thinking about humility and, and you know, we, uh, we brought that up earlier, but I, I ran across this, uh, Spurgeon quote, um, in relation to the doctrine of God. And I thought, I thought it would be good to read. So he says, um, the highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his father. There is something exceedingly improving to the mind in a contemplation of the divinity. It is a subject so vast that all our thoughts are lost in its immensity, so deep that our pride is drowned in its infinity. Other subjects we can uh, compass and grapple with in them. We feel a kind of self content and go our way with the thought, behold, I'm wise. But when we come to this master science, finding that our, our plumb line cannot sound its depth and that our eagle eye cannot see its height. We turn away with the thought that vain man would be wise, but he is like a wild ass's colt. And with solemn exclamation, I am but of yesterday and know nothing. No subject of contemplation will tend more to humble the mind than thoughts of God. I just thought, you know, that's a super good reminder that, you know, that's one of the practical uh, benefits of actually spending time contemplating God and and who he is, is that it will humble us. I think more than any other topic we could uh, spend time thinking about. Yeah, no, that's good. And I mean, I, he was 20 years old when he said that in a sermon, which is just mind blowing to me, but I don't know. <laughs> I mean, what, what an episode. You got me saying I'm pissing people off and you've got Spurgeon talking about wild asses. I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, 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 we're edgy gonna, now. I've seen gonna, all these. We're going to put I've, a you know, E next to this podcast. <laughs> that's right. I've seen all these, these Twitter maps of all these, you know, I guess Theobro Island and, and stuff, you know, we're going to be on the map. Yeah. Oh, goodness. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So I guess th- this naturally it's, I, I mean, obviously I know the answer to what I'm going to say to this, but creation X and Hillo Carter said all forms of relational th- theism. And this is a direct quote from process theology to dynamic panentheism to open theism to theistic personalism to ecofeminism, all deny creation ex nihilo, end quote. Now, we, I asked Craig Carter about this, and he said, no, 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 I didn't say that. I said something else. But what I think he meant to say was, I meant something else, yeah. which, is, which is fair. I get it. Uh, however, you know, if you're going to publish something, let's, let's be fair and representative. But that said, I, I don't think that that's true. Now, I mean, I don't know a ton about ecofeminism. I don't really know what eco 
and the eco part of that means I know feminism, but there, there are plenty, you know, people in here who would deny creation. Hello. I was reading a uh, paper from uh, Brian Orr, and he's going through Thomas Ord's, I think I said his name right, denial of creation eggs and hillow. It's fascinating. He, he legitimately is denying creation eggs and hillow. And he's doing it because he thinks that, I think if I understand his argument right, that creation eggs and hillow is arbitrary, which then means that God may not necessarily love you. He may change his mind. Therefore, he wants to jettison that and say creation is necessary because God necessarily loves you. I think that's fascinating. Some people do actually reject this doctrine, but on the vast majority, I mean, the relational theism, 95% of relational theists or more are going to affirm it. That's just, it's not true. Now, if you want to construct an argument saying you, based upon believing relational theism, ultimately must necessarily deny or even inductively likely deny creation exit. Hello. That's, that's one thing I'd like to see that argument. Mm-hmm. But that's not, that's just that's not what's actually true. <laughs> so uh, I think things besides classical theism can affirm it. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, no, I agree. That's what I was, my kind of big beef listening to that episode was I could think of off the top of my head several guys who would be classified, you know, theistic mutualist Um that would not that would affirm creation ex nihilo and actually talk about it quite a bit. Yeah, um, I, I understand Dr. Carter's point. I think in, in implication to say that you need to affirm kind of all of the tenets of classical theism in order to have a God who can create out of nothing without being like demanded upon. Right. So I, I understand that the problem, again, like we've been talking about the whole episode is that's not where a lot of these guys are actually at. Yeah. Um, and they do. Right. A lot of these theistic mutualists still affirm a strong sense of timelessness and these other elements that could still very much so get you a God who can create out of nothing. So um, I think there are ways to get there. It's not the best way to get there, yeah. um, but I think you still can. Right. I mean, the, the easy answers are, let's go to Bruce Ware, who's been beat up on a lot, um, fairly in some senses, yeah. but unfairly in others. I, I, I don't think anyone would go to Bruce Ware and say, yes, you deny creation exit hello because of your semi-relational theism, modified classical theism or whatever. I, I don't, they'd be laughed out of the room. Same thing with John Frame. I've got my issues with John Frame too. But you'd be yeah. laughed out of the room if you told him you deny creation next to Hillo. That's yeah. just not true. <laughs> yeah. That's crazy talk. So, Brandon, did you have anything you wanted to touch on with that? Then let's just, I guess we can wrap up real quick with, real quick, with social Trinitarianism. Carter has also said social Trinitarianism, let's see, does he say it's heresy? Let me look at this quote. It, it has been heretical since the fourth century. And it's not going to get any less heretical in the future, no matter how many qualifications <laughs> or redefinitions are proposed. I mean, so, yes. yeah. <laughs> He's got such a way with words, man. That's that, I've got to give it to Like, I enjoy reading his stuff from just a pure, like, readership standpoint. Some yeah. authors, you know, it's a, it's a labor to read. That is yeah. not the case for Craig. He is enjoyable to read. Even if I think it's just wild what he says. So... 
social trinitarianism <laughs> i think just the, the quick answer to this is it heretical maybe it depends on what version of social trinitarianism you take because yeah. there's all sorts of models of social trinitarianism again and i think carter did mention in that episode he, he made a distinction between something that's heresy and being a heretic which was, I think, really nice distinction, actually, where you can believe a heresy but not be a heretic, where I think his distinction was basically saying, if you know the truth and you obstinately oppose the truth, then that would make you a heretic. If you just simply believe something that's false, that's actually a heresy, but you don't know any better or, or something along those lines, then, then you're not a heretic, though you believe in heresy. So Bruce Ware's... I guess, belief that there are three wills in the Godhead, I think would probably say, yeah, that's heresy, but I wouldn't call him a heretic. I think that is a nice distinction though. He, he does. Yeah, I, was know about to say, I think, I think he's actively, I, th- I think <sighs> even under, I, I'm not calling him a heretic, by the way, I'm no, just no, saying no, no, under yeah, those, yeah. under those definitions, I think he, he would fall under both categories because, you know, he's, he's published a fair amount and has been, Okay, well, maybe maybe the experiment. simply because he's not ignorant. Yeah, maybe the classical position. Maybe the distinction is he is affirming whatever's in the Nicene Creed, but he's deconstructing it by his belief that there are three wills. That's just incompatible with right. Nicaea, though yeah. he's affirming Orthodox traditional doctrine in 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 word when it comes to the Trinity. You know, there's one God, three persons. He affirms that he's denying an implication or a metaphysical foundation to that doctrine. Okay. Maybe I like that. I'll take that as my definition. So if will is, so if will is, is what you said, will is, uh, proper to person for him. Is that right? Like if there are three. So that means. Now he may have changed his view since all this stuff. I, I haven't read him since. Yeah, so, so if Christ is he's, he's a divine person and not a human person, he's a then he doesn't have a human will for under Ware's view. I don't know what Ware says on Christ. I think or, I think he's. I think Doctor Ware argues that Christ does have two wills. Okay, because I think will is proper to person. Made, yeah, then but you got I think Nestorianism, so I, I just don't yeah. see any way out of this. So I, I yeah, no, it's made, inconsistent. I, I've, yeah, I've heard him make arguments in class, even about Gethsemane, saying that you know the human will was almost in conflict with the divine will, but that the human Jesus in his human will decided to obey his own divine will, etc. So, so he's um, got to have some kind of way of having wills proper to nature and person somehow. That's your only way out. To have yeah. for Christ to have a, a human will and then to have three wills in the Trinity. Yeah, I think I just need to have Bruce tell me like, "Hey, what do you think now?" Yeah, for real. But that's a little off topic. Sorry, they just yeah, no, no, that's fine. Because I, part of the reason I'm bringing this up and thinking about it is because again, I think even I know we talk about the SBC. I know we have a lot of listeners who are not SBC, who are not even Baptist. Uh, so I don't want to completely exclude them from this application to the local church. I imagine all of our churches, if you are a Protestant and Catholic too, I think, just have deficient views on the Trinity, on God, on the divine attributes, on all these things. So we've been having all these debates about it, but how do we teach sound doctrine to our own churches so that 
I mean, they, I don't care if they're super up and engaged with all the latest debates. I mean, it's cool if they are. Some of them are going to get really interested and like that kind of thing. Just don't start posting on Twitter your thoughts, uh, please. <laughs> and <Yeah. laughs> in, in a combative way, anyway. And in an anonymous accounts, because that's what happens all the time. But I do think it's important to teach these things to to our church members. How how do we do that? Do we, Cody? You mentioned like Scott Swain's little introduction book. I mean, is yeah. that a good series? You think for pastors thinking I, I want to teach my church this? Would, would this be something they'd want to use like a group setting or maybe a Sunday night setting or a Wednesday night or whatever they do? Yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely recommend it. I think it's excellent. I just got the new Gerald gray volume on the attributes of God. I haven't finished it, but I've read the first couple of chapters and it's really good. It's really helpful. Um, it's just, re- and it's really simple, right? He's, he's not using crazy academic jargon. He's just kind of just straightforward saying, this is what we, well, this is what orthodoxy has said about the attributes. And so I think that'll be a really helpful series. I think reformed people often shoot our own, <laughs> shoot ourselves in the foot in this regard in regards to how we think about like expositional preaching. Yeah. You know, I think some guys are just like kind of, you know, Johnny Mac so hard, you know, in regards to if you're not preaching like a verse by verse through a book and if you ever take breaks, yeah. you're like unfaithful. Yeah. I think that's really hurt us legitimately from like I love you, Johnny Mac time. lovers out there. I know you're out there listening. God, I love you. God bless your souls. Uh, <laughs> but uh like I think we really have hurt ourselves in that regards because so many of these doctrines and issues are things that frankly are going to be really hard to dive into if you're just like verse by verse preaching through a book. And I, 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 and because of that, these issues often go completely unaddressed, Mm -hmm. which is why you have so many lay people who just don't have a grasp at all of what these issues are. And so that's why, and that's why they often may have these kind of what would be social Trinitarian kind of leanings when you ask them to explain what the Trinity is. Um, but that's more of an indictment, I think, upon like how kind of American reformed culture, Calvinistic culture has gone about like teaching and preaching. Um, I think there's definitely room that pastors can take to, yeah, like walk, yeah, like walk through, of course, like anchor it and walk through a biblical text, but you can do those things and address, you know, impassibility, transcendence, whatever. Um, Like you can do that with the biblical text and um, simply taking a break out of your, whatever sermon series you're on to do that um, isn't a bad thing. Um, And it's frankly what I think a lot of our people need. and so um, they so often, at least this is what I've experienced at my church, you know, our people are really great at knowing what justification by faith alone is, right? Mm-hmm. They have kind of the solas down pat, right? You kind of ask pretty much every aspect of systematic theology except the doctrine of God. And a lot of them have a pretty decent grasp and are able to kind of give you orthodox answers. But the moment you talk to them about Trinity, they're just like, I have no clue what to say. And I think that's because a lot of pastors think that, well, my people just aren't going to grasp the intricacies of this. So I'm just like, not even going to try. And I'm just going to kind of keep it to base level one God, three persons. This is what you have to affirm to be a Christian. And that's all you say. Mm -hmm. Um, And you're just really opening the door 
for your people to hold like Aaron's views of the Trinity um, when you do that. And especially in our, you know, American like Calvinistic culture where so many churches aren't confessional or creedal. So they don't have like that kind of background yeah. to talk about these issues either. Um, and so and, what were you going to say, Brandon? I was just going to say, and it's the, it's the easy way out for the pastor to, to yeah. just say, you know, just give, you know, one being three persons and then be done with it. Cause then you don't have to, you don't have to answer tough questions, which means you've got to study less, you know, and, and so <laughs> we, we, we've got to stop being lazy, number one. Um, but I, I think teaching through a confession of faith uh, is, yeah. is a good way to go about it as well. Like, you know, at our church, um, you know, I, I've been, we've taken a little bit of a break, but I've been teaching through the New Hampshire confession. And I mean, the New Hampshire confession is not spell out classical theism, but I used, you know, that article on the doctrine of God as a, you know, kind of a, a jumping off point into those discussions. Um, you know, and it was really good. I think, you know, our, our people, they can handle more than we think they can. You know, we just got to take time to walk slowly through things and, you know, it sharpens us as well. Um, oh, and one other thing I wanted to say is I, I heard Truman recommend, I have no any no idea about this book other than Truman recommended it. And I've listened to a lot of his stuff on classical theism, so it must be good. But um, the identity and attributes of God, Terry Johnson, I think that's banner of yeah. truth. Um, he was talking that up quite a bit. So, and I, I think he said that's really good for like a lay level audience. So I like Terry Johnson. He's at what, what first independent Presbyterian church, maybe. Yeah. That's in, right. Uh, Savannah. Uh, I don't know about Savannah, but uh, I know that's the name of the church because I was just looking at the uh, it's, it's Amazon a beautiful, page. beautiful church building. <laughs> oh, yeah. Wonderful sanctuary. I mean, it's just yeah. the sound quality in there is stupendous. You know, <laughs> yeah. There was a brief time where I flirted with my Presbyterian friends and, you know, I was part of the conferences and all that kind of stuff. So that, that that's for another time. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was going to say to Brandon's point, though, like our people really can't handle much more than what we think. Right. Both adults and kids, frankly, like we have, we, you know, at our church, we've tried to implement much more like, you know, outside of Sunday morning, you know, kind of like more Q and a style stuff. And like, you would just be amazed the questions even kids have about theology. And I think just in our laziness, assuming that like, well, they're just not going to get it, you know, I think is just incredibly harmful. Yeah, Um, because 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 they can, because we have people in our church who are you know construction workers. They're quote unquote blue collar, right? But they're reading a lot of the same books we are. They're grasping them and they're having in depth discussions about them throughout the week, and um, and that's only helped their walk, right? That hasn't kind of steered them away from you know just thinking about Jesus or just kind of being centered on the gospel. Um, I think in our aim to kind of keep the main thing, the main thing, we've kind of truncated a lot of these other issues, um, that in a way that's just harmful to our people. That, that That's really good. I think the, the obvious example is if, if our kids can learn complex calculus and statistics and chemistry yeah. and physics and all these things, you're telling me they can't do doctrine the yeah. infinitely more important and our school systems are apparently everybody's supposed to be stupid in america so if they can handle that <laughs> they can definitely handle some doctrine amen 
for real. Yeah, I know. Reef group doing calculus, and we asked, yeah, and but we've almost created a culture yeah, where we yeah. almost are encouraging them not to ask questions. You know, yeah. particularly, I would say this as Baptist, who, and especially, I'll say this. You know, we have people in our church that are very influenced by the way that Mark Dever talks about baptism. So, like withholding kids from baptism to they're eighteen. Which I think right? is just which is just I love Mark, but uh. I, I understand his reasoning for it. Still, <laughs> that's think another it. podcast, I think. But. Yeah, <laughs> but Mark follows oh, me on Twitter, so I better be careful. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot of we have a lot of kids who really wrestle with assurance because of that, right? Yeah. A lot of these kids that I think are genuine believers who are like, but like my my parents aren't getting baptized, aren't going to let me get baptized because they believe Mark Dever's right, and so. Yeah. Um, like how, how am I to think about myself? And that can be incredibly harmful in a number of ways for our children. And so I think as Baptists in particular, who do want to affirm believe like a, you know, regenerate, regenerate church membership, right. And bringing children in, into our covenant bodies who are believers, um, we need to do a much better job of encouraging them to ask questions instead of just kind of having this, you know, lazy attitude of, well, you're not a believer. So you clearly just like, you know, don't need to bother with it. Um, That's good. Any other closing thoughts before we wrap this one up? Nope. Awesome. So everybody who's been listening, I'm going to, I think maybe this one or maybe the next Hanover house, I'm going to do a run. I think a little giveaway to give away a shirt or a hoodie or something for London Lyceum. So if you guys like this, I'm going to do a giveaway and I'm going to ask, I think I may change my mind. So this may be completely out of date and irrelevant. And if you're listening to this three months from now, sorry, you missed it. Maybe it'll be one coming up soon, but I'm going to, if you do leave an iTunes review, you'll get entered into the contest. I think that'd be fun. Or if you just want the own goodwill of your heart, go put a five-star iTunes and then give us a little actual two sentence review. Uh, It actually does help podcasts in the podcast world. I don't know all the algorithms that go behind it, yeah, I, that's behind the pay, the the special paywall or in smart wall and Apple that I I'll never have access to, but it does help podcasts. So I do ask if that's something you you've benefited from this, you find it useful. I'd really appreciate it. If nothing else, it just encourages us to know that this is useful to you and you appreciate it. I did see Hog Fan seven three four five six seven eight nine. That's not actually what it is, but it's Hog Fan something. I think that's my Clark. Uh, out there. Yaza, I don't know how to say your name, but I'll give you a shout out. Since I was supposed to give a shout out last Hanover House to to somebody who left a review, no one did. And then like two <laughs> days later, we got like four reviews. So uh, I'll give you a shout out there. And Brandon's grandma left a review too, I think. She I don't want to out her. I'm not going to tell her which one, tell you which one it is, but uh, she's our super fan. So we she appreciate is. you. Yep. <laughs> so if Brandon's grandma enjoys all our episodes, then clearly you can teach your local church members doctrine. Not saying Amen. Brandon's grandma is dumb. That's what it sounded like you were saying, but that's okay. <laughs> I apologize. The whole point of what we're saying is that our people aren't dumb. Right, that's right. right. That's right. I'm just giving so, you a hard time. Anyway, uh, we, we thank you guys for tuning in. Hopefully this is useful. I think it's pretty fun just to kind of chat and have a little unscripted conversation on it. So anyway, you've been listening to the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet which Griffin Gulledge, I saw on Twitter, said he's going to make a podcast that's analytic, Baptist, professional, so that I can't be the only one. But then I'll just be the OG. So we'll be the OG, the original. Either way, you come that's out right. with it. That's, that's what I'm talking about. All right, thanks, you guys, for tuning in. <laughs>